Are you guys ready? Yes. Let's do it. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. We'll finish off the doctrinal portion of this great letter, looking at 14 to 21 of this pivotal book. Now, we're returning to chapter 3, or where chapter 3 actually began in verse 1, where Paul said, for this reason. And then in typical Pauline style, he inserted a rather lengthy parenthetical thought. What came into his mind? He departed from for this reason. He told us about God's plan. He told us about God's plan for the perfect church. Now, we made three observations last time when we were together. And that is that the perfect church believes and teaches that the Bible is the inspired and infallible word of God. Amen. Amen. We also made the point that the perfect church is a tangible expression of the love and power of God. And then lastly, we made the very simplistic and obvious observation that the perfect church is always talking about Jesus. Yes. Listen, we're not here to talk about our best life now. This isn't our best life. That's the next one. Yes. And we're going to be there for a very, very long time. And it's going to be way better than this, this one. I'm grateful for that. I've always thought, man, if this is your best life now, what a bummer that is. I'm looking forward to the next one, are you? Yes. Now, we made the point last time that uh, just because the church is filled with imperfect people doesn't diminish the perfection of God's plan. Yes, we're not perfect, right? And it's been said, if you find the perfect church, don't join it, you'll ruin it. I say, if you find the perfect church, be a part of it, go to it, because you'll find a group of imperfect people trying to follow a perfect God and a perfect plan. Now, having finished his parenthetical thought, Paul now reintroduces where he was going in the first place as we find the phrase repeated again, for this reason. Now, the reason of his for this reason was in reference to what we studied in chapter 2. We found in 14 to 18 that he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached to you who were afar off, that's a Hebraic phrase for the Gentiles, they were considered afar off, and to those who were near. And of course the Jews saw themselves as near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to who? The to the Father. Now, long before the church age and uh, started, the world was divided into two groups for literally millennia, Jews and Gentiles. And Paul is saying, listen, through the blood of Jesus, a new race has been created, a race that is comprised of people of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and it's called the church. This is a group where there is neither Jew nor Greek. This is a group where there is neither slave nor free, male nor female. There's just one body of which Christ is the head. Now, it was for the purpose of proclaiming the mystery of the church that Paul said, I received a dispensation of grace to declare what was not known in previous ages, that Jews and Gentiles were fellow heirs in the same body and partakers of the same promises in Christ through the gospel. 
Now Paul's going to return from his parentheses and get back on point and finish his thought that for this reason, because of one man being made from the two, he prays for the church. Now our title and topic from these wonderful verses this morning is The Power of Love. The Power of Love. Now, I have to admit, I've had a Huey Lewis song stuck in my head ever since I came up with that title. And if I just stuck it in your head, please try and pay attention throughout the message anyway, even though you're humming that song. Now, contextually, some see this as a prayer. I believe that our verses are not actually a prayer, but rather Paul is revealing the content of what he prays for the one new man. And the closing of the amen in verse 21 is simply a notification of a change of topic where Paul switches gears from the doctrinal section of Ephesians to the duty portion of the letter, which is indicated by the opening words of chapter 4. Paul admonishes the church to walk worthy of their calling. We know walk is a way to uh, say live your life in the scripture. Now, Jesus said, say Jesus said. Jesus said said in John 13, 34 and 35, a new suggestion I give you. A new what? Commandment I give you. That you love one another as I have loved you. That you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, the fact that love is given in the form of a commandment tells us that the love that Jesus is speaking of and the love he has in view is not the warm fuzzies of a romantic love. Because you can't make that happen. It just does. Right? (laughs) Right? It just happens. But the love that is in view is rather outward, intentional, and visible expressions of Christ-likeness that tells the world we're his disciples. Now, this is part of the manifested power of love that others can see that identify us with Christ and identify us as the church, the one new man. So let's see what the power of love looks like in the final section of the doctrinal portion of the handbook of the Christian faith called Ephesians. So would you stand and read with me Ephesians 3, 14 through 21 as we find the power of love. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees to the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body, the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And Lord, we add our amen to that of the text. We pray that you would be glorified in our lives and in this church. We pray, Lord, that you would remind us of these truths we'll examine this morning of the power of love and how important it is that we display a Christ-like love to one another that the world could know we are distinct from them and we love Jesus. Help us in that and give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
Now, the first thing to highlight is that we see four petitions that Paul makes when he describes his prayer for the one new man. First, he says, he prays that they may be strengthened by the indwelling of the Spirit, uh, or through His Spirit. He also prays that they be rooted and established or grounded in love. And thirdly, he prays that they may know Christ's love in all of its dimensions, even though it cannot ever be fully known. And fourth, he says that they may be completely filled with the very fullness of God. Now, another thing to take note of is we can see Paul's passion demonstrated through his posture in prayer. I think we've all seen scenes of uh, the Jews praying at the wailing wall, and they are all doing what? They're standing. That's the normal posture of prayer for the Jew. The Jews do this, and, and their, their hands are extended. They expect to receive something from God, and they uh, extend their hands in honor of him and in expectant, uh, expectancy of an answer to their prayers. Now, when a Jew would kneel in prayer, it indicated a couple of things. First, the urgency of the matter at hand, and secondly, the earnestness in relation to the subject of the prayer. Now we can see this for us, uh, demonstrated through Jesus in Luke 22, 39 to 44, where coming out, he, Jesus, went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter temptation. And when he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, what did he do? He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father... If it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven and strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed how? More, More earnestly, as indicated by his posture. Once again, then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There is no illustration better than this that we just read of the connection between the content and the kneeling in prayer of the urgency of the matter at hand. Jesus was getting ready to die for the sins of the world and he knelt before the Father in prayer as an example to you and I. Now Paul says, for this reason, the reason being the one new man of the previous verses, he bows his knees to the Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is an indication of his earnestness, his urgency. And then he reminds us that all the families of heaven and earth are named from the Father. Now there are various interpretations of this. Some see this as meaning that the Father uh, of Jesus is the founder of fatherhood. He's uh, the initiator of fatherhood, meaning the concept of fatherhood is derived from the divine father-son relationship. Now, this is unlikely because human fathers are not like God, Amen. except on Father's Day, <laughs> right? They can do no wrongs. That should be the model on Father's Day, right? Now, and listen, the son has always existed just like the father. He was not born through biological means. He existed in the beginning. He was present and active at creation, according to Colossians 1, 15 and 16. So that comparison breaks down. Others see this as an expression that God is the father of all. Much like the popular saying today, we are all God's children. Nope. No, we're not. If you're already God's child, why do you need to be adopted? 
we become God's child, John 1.12 says, by becoming adopted. And then we have the right to become sons and daughters of God. Others think this phrase means the angelic beings in heaven and add that to the human believers on earth. But again, this departs from the context of what Paul has been saying. His subject is the one new man. Now, I think the best way to understand this statement of he being the father of us all is that Paul is saying that God only has one family. Amen. 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 God only has one family. There's Jewish and Gentile believers equally amongst them. Some of them are now in heaven. He's the father of those who have died and gone to be with the Lord. And other believers are separated by death and yet remain alive here on earth. Nevertheless, they are the only two parts of the one great family of God. And now we're going to find this confirmed when we get to 4.6, where Paul says there is one God and one body. Amen? Amen? Now then Paul begins to reveal the content of his urgent and passionate prayer for them, beginning with that they, according to the riches of God's glory, would be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man or the, the deepest portions of your being. Now remember what we said about the creation of the one new man in Christ. It was a third race within humanity that was created called the church or the body of Christ. And the world having for millennia been divided into two categories, Jews and Gentiles is how the Jews saw it, Greeks and barbarians is how the rest of the world saw it, especially under the Greek empire. Now this one new man functioning as a family unit is going to take some strength. It's going to take some strength from deep within. It's going to take some strength beyond human means. It's going to require the power of the Holy Spirit for Jew and Gentile to get along and see themselves as one family after centuries and millennia of the world being divided into those two categories. Now, we noted back in chapter 2 that there are a lot of ethnic tensions in the world today. Amen. Something that Jesus said is going to happen as a sign of the last days. But we also said when we studied chapter 2, there should be no ethnic tensions in the church. Amen. There is one body and we are all one in Christ Jesus. And listen, because of this first reality about the power of love, we need to understand how important that is in such a time as this. And here's our first observation. Listen this morning. The power of God's love is revealed through our oneness in Christ. The power of God's love is revealed through our oneness in Christ. Now, Paul's use of the phrase, the inner man, indicates a transcendent work of the power of the Holy Spirit that is so great, it changes people's conscience and it changes people's convictions. Think about what David said in Psalm 34, 3 and 4. King David said, trust in the Lord and do good to everybody alike. No, just period, right? Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you what? Desires. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Now, when we first come to trust in the Lord and delight ourselves in him, he gives us new desires. It doesn't mean he gives us everything we desire. It means that he puts desires in us. How do we know that's true in the New Testament age? Think about Paul. Paul thought he was doing God's service by imprisoning and killing Christians. Then he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, and those he was once trying to kill, he now had the desire to even die for them. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what being born again does. I remember we were one year uh, in Israel, standing on the banks of the Jordan River, where Jesus was actually baptized. He wasn't baptized at the place they hold baptisms today, very commercialized type of thing. Uh, but he was baptized at the same place where 
Joshua led the people across the Jordan River, and we were standing there on one bank, looking at the other bank of the Jordan River to the country of Jordan, and there were Jordanian Christians standing on the other side of the river. Now, they were far enough away, we couldn't see their faces, we couldn't hear them speak, we couldn't see the expressions on their face, but I'll tell you one thing, I could feel the sense of love and family as I watched the people with an unfriendly cooperation with the nation of Israel, whose leaders would rather see Israel wiped out, waving excitingly at their brothers and sisters on the other side of the river, standing in Israeli territory, blowing kisses at us. Why? Because we're family. It doesn't matter what country name we're under. There's one family. There's one body that Jesus made and fashioned with his own blood. What a wonderful thing it is to be able to sense such love when you can't communicate verbally and see it expressed in such a way that makes it clear that we are one in Christ. Think about this. Anybody who's been in battle, who's encountered somebody of the opposing forces uh, enemy in their uniform, it's not love you feel. There's an urgency, but it's not an urgency to love them. It's an urgency to defend yourself. And the opposite of that feeling is true when Christians meet of any country, even if they don't speak the same language. The language of God's love is manifested when they meet. You know, we, I've walked away from multiple situations. Terry and I have encountered people where you just, you just know they know Jesus. You just know they do. You don't even have to ask them. And by the way, nobody should ever have to ask if we're a Christian. They ought to find out right away. Why? You're one of those disciples, aren't you? I can see the love you have for other people, and therefore you must be one of God's children, and one uh, who loves God. But today, we see so much division going on in the body of Christ. Isn't heaven going to be awesome? Yes. All one body in one place, unified around our worship of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Now, John, this is so important. This point is so important. That John the Beloved said this in 1 John 3, 10 to 15. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. You know what that means? <laughs> Just what it says. Nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who is of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Now listen to this. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I'm starting to think John thought love was important. And even a proof of the presence of God in our lives. And this underscores our point. How we interact with others should be distinct from how the world interacts with itself in every way, shape, and form. When God changes us and strengthens us in our inner man, the first manifestation is going to be oneness in Christ, regardless of ethnicity, language, social, or financial status. We are all one in Christ Jesus as proof of the power of God's love. Amen? Amen. Now, 17 to 19, let's, let's take a second glance at that. Paul continues to reveal the content of his prayer where he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height 
to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Isn't that an awesome phrase? Yeah. Filled with all the fullness. That's not double speak. Paul has a point. We'll make it in a moment. Now the prayer that Christ would dwell in our hearts is not an indication that you can be a Christian without Christ in your heart. Nor backing up a verse is it indicating you can be a Christian and not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. The word dwell in the literal sense means to permanently reside. But it's not the literal sense that's in view here, but rather the metaphoric meaning, which is to prompt, govern, or to influence. And Paul is saying that what Christ has done in your heart influence everything you do. Now, let me ask this question. Can you have the Lord in your heart and the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and do stupid stuff? Absolutely. How about doing what you want? Yeah. How about doing what you should? Why is it so quiet in here? Come on, get in the game. Now, listen, Paul is saying what we, uh, Paul is praying what he will be saying directly as he opens chapter 4. Let Christ in your heart cause you to walk worthy of your calling by faith that prompts and influences them to be rooted and grounded in love. Now, I think anyone who has studied Pauline epistles knows he loves metaphors. He loves uh, sometimes mixed metaphors, and he's combined two here. He uses the agricultural. He talks about being rooted. He uses the architectural. He talks about being grounded or Im implying the foundation that our lives are to be built upon. And he says to the church, to the one church around the world in every age, may your love be rooted in Christ and built on the foundation of his love for you. That's what Paul is saying. He prays for them. Peter says this in 4, 7 to 10 of his first letter. But the end of all things is at hand. Listen, if Peter said that 2,000 years ago, we ought to be able to shout it now, right? But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And above all things, have what kind of love? Fervent, Fervent love for who? One another. One another. And then he adds this attribute of love. For love will, next word, cover a multitude of sins. He says, be hospitable to one another, which means to have a love for strangers. Oh, and then he says, without grumbling, come on. <laughs> then he adds, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now listen, what Paul is praying, Peter is saying, that we may operate as the one new man, the church, being rooted deeply and built exclusively on love. Now, Peter says, love covers a multitude of sins. Now, the, the Greek word translated as cover literally means to hinder the knowledge of. Now, what it means in this particular context is that what Peter's saying is that one Christian ought not to be telling other Christians what one Christian did to them for the sake of making them look bad and you feel good. In other words, don't gossip. Now, the word cover can also mean to set a matter aside. Now, to set a matter aside requires inner strength beyond your own, right? So let me illustrate the point like this. As some of you know, it may have gotten out that I like horsepower. <laughs> and in case anybody was wondering, my car has a Hemi. And in case you're wondering about a Hemi, that means go fasty. <laughs> Not that I have ever gone over the speed limit. I can't read those signs, so I wouldn't know. 
But here's the thing. My car doesn't say Hemi on it anywhere. It says on the valve cover Hemi in great big letters, which I like to show to people. But it doesn't say Hemi on my car anywhere. So how can other people know I have a Hemi, which is very important to all Hemi owners, except through a demonstration of the Hemi? Right? It's not externally pasted on my car. Now, there is a point to that. I have a Hemi. That was the point to that. The point is this. Listen, you can put it on a T-shirt. You can have a bumper sticker. You can have it displayed wherever you want. But until you apply the power, it doesn't mean anything. See, I told you there was a point to my Hemi story. Now, check this out. I've always found this to be absolutely fascinating. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul, outside of the free will election debate, is discussing the most divisive matter in the church in any age of history, including right now, and that is the gifts of the Spirit. So he talks about the gifts of the Spirit in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. He talks about the gifts of the Spirit in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, and what does he put in between them? He puts the love chapter. Why? Because that's the most important thing. You know how he expresses it? He says this, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Now, I've explained to you before that a sounding brass was a big brass vase set on a stage of a Greek play that would vibrate and resonate the sound, kind of an uh, ancient amplification system. It didn't really say anything. It was just making noise. It was causing vibrations to roll off the stage and amplify sound. Paul is saying, listen, you may have the gift of tongues and you can speak with the uh, language of angels, but if you don't have love, you're like an empty, huge brass vase sitting on a stage or somebody clanging a cymbal. And he says, though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains but have not love, I am what? Nothing. And then he adds this, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. And then he begins to describe love. Love suffers long and is what? Kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not behave rudely. Does not behave rudely. <laughs> Does not seek its own. The needle got stuck there for a minute for all of you old record owners. Is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the what? Truth, love, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Say it out loud. Love never fails. In the famous love chapter inserted between two defining chapters on the gifts of the Holy Spirit, Paul strings together 15 Greek verbs to tell us not what love is, but what love does. There's not one feeling listed. There's not one emotion lifted, listed. It is all actions, and thus they are all actionable. We can apply them all. Now, Paul in our verses says that being rooted and grounded in love enables us to comprehend the dimensional love of Christ. The width, the length, the depth, and the height, which cannot ever be fully known because of those dimensions, which leads to being filled with the fullness of God. Now, Paul says the love of Christ passes knowledge. That means it cannot be fully experienced and it cannot be fully understood because of its limitless nature. 
And again, I think an illustration would help us to understand it. Imagine you go down to the Pacific Ocean with a cup or a glass of some kind, some type of small container. And you go down to the water and you dip it in the Pacific Ocean, the big blue as we like to call it, just absolutely beautiful. You dip it in the ocean and you come up and that cup is absolutely full of the Pacific Ocean. But the Pacific Ocean is not all in the cup. This is what the love that Paul is talking about. We got a scoop of Jesus and we are filled with his love, the attributes, the character, the nature of God, the love of God fills us and allows us to manifest him in our lives, but there is no end to his love. Amen. We cannot possibly experience it all, though we have all of it that we can contain. Now here's our next truth about the power of love. Listen, you ready for this? There is no circumstance, say no circumstance. There is no circumstance where love is the wrong reaction. There is no circumstance where love is the wrong reaction. Now, listen again, we're not talking about, you know, Jesus talking about loving your enemies. He's talking about interpersonal relationships. He's not talking about uh, the national defense or any of those things. We have responsibilities. Governments have the responsibilities to defend their citizens from evil, right? Amen. Romans 13, that's what it says. We're talking about interpersonal interactions. Now, we're not talking about acting like something horrible that someone did to you didn't happen either. What we are talking about is not letting something horrible define you and diminish the power of love in and through you, but to keep and maintain that scoop of God's love that fills us all. We are filled with the fullness of God. Now, there had long been bad blood between Jew and Gentile, and Paul is saying love opens the door to experiencing the fullness of God. Because after all, Christ died for you when you were his enemies. Yes. And he says so in the parallel book of Colossians to Ephesians in 1, to 23. He says, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through what? Yes. Death to present you how? Holy. Holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, let me ask you a question. Is our country and world a mess? Yes. Is it getting worse? Yes. Is evil abounding and growing seemingly day by day? Yes. We can't let that move us away from love. It is still the attribute we are to display the most. One commentator I read did a, a fantastic job at describing the four-dimensional love of Christ like this. He said, it's wide enough to encompass all of humanity. Man, that's good. It's wide enough to encompass all of humanity. It's long enough to last for eternity. It's deep enough to reach the most damaged sinner, and it's high enough to exalt us to heaven. Isn't that awesome? That's the love of God. And that's what Paul is describing here. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 43 to 30, uh, 45 in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Yeah, we all do that. <laughs> and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Default behavior, right? that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes, here's the common grace of God, he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. 
Now, John the Beloved, again, in 4.8 of his first letter, says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. is love. I think that's so important how the Spirit inspired him to structure that statement. He's not saying God is loving. God is love in and of itself. He's the Pacific Ocean, so to speak, from our illustration earlier. He's the one where we derive our love from. Now, can we be filled, therefore, with the fullness of God and not have love? It's not possible. There's no circumstance where the actions of love are not the right response, even if it means keeping your distance or breaking off a relationship with someone who may be dangerous to you or it's not for your best for your safety. And even then, we cannot allow circumstances to diminish our love because it's our love that tells the world we're his disciples. Did you go home? No. All right. Let's keep going. We'll wrap it up with the two uh, most well-known verses from this particular passage. Verse 20, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory where? By who? For how long? Forever and ever, somebody say, Amen. Amen. Now, Paul links three major components of the purpose of the one new man together here and reminds us of God's ability, God's power, and God's glory in and through the church. Now, this uh, raises for us an important point in these last days and perilous times in which we now live. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul told the young pastor, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will never have anything go wrong. <laughs> we'll do what? Suffer. suffer, that means experience a sensation of persecution. We'll suffer persecution. Now, that's not the important point, but it does make a point and point to our point. Get the point? <laughs> now, Amen. listen to this. God is able to do anything at any time, anywhere. God is able to do anything at any time and anywhere. Now, listen, this is simplistic and, and an obvious point, but this simplistic and obvious point often gets clouded by seasons of difficulty or painful circumstances. And since the objective of the one new man is to bring God glory, and since, listen, since you're listening, yes. since God is always worthy of glory, even during crisis, yes. even during catastrophes, even during uh, pandemics, even during recessions, even during rampant defections from truth in the church, these things do not hinder the ability of the one new man to bring God glory. Amen. Now, listen, God is able to do more in times we think of as less likely for him to bring himself glory than we can even ask or think. Have you ever met somebody and thought, Man, I don't know if Nancy Pelosi can really get... I mean, if, is, can God save them? You ever thought that? You ever thought, man, that, that dude is wicked. I used to see somebody like that in the mirror, but uh, God saved me, right? Amen. Now, God saved me, right? That wasn't enough, right, sir? Now listen, we know that because it is his power that works in us, which is and cannot be limited by the seasons and circumstances of life that we can always remember. He can do anything. That's right. You can pray it and he can exceed it. Right. He can do whatever he wants to do because he's God, right? 
Now, think about what Paul said in the famed chapter of Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who shall separate us? He didn't say what. He said who. That means there's attempts from the dark side. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter yet. In what? All these things, the aforementioned, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then Paul said, because of all that, I'm persuaded. I hope you are. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, things planned against you, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes. Paul says, because of God's abundant abilities and those abilities manifested and demonstrated by his power in us through the one new man of the church, God receives glory in all generations forever and ever. Amen. I read an article yesterday which had the basic premise of the church in America is dying. It will cease to exist. One particular paragraph grabbed me. And it said this, and I quote, Finally, the big picture is dominated by the relative decline of white Christians in general from about two-thirds of the population in 1996 to less than half today. The fastest growing group, meanwhile, is the religiously unaffiliated, the so-called nuns, are not necessarily atheists or totally disengaged from religious life, but they do place themselves outside conventional religious categories and institutions, end quote. Now, the interesting thing about this is the media is always trying to stir up That's racism. <laughs> because the first thing we need to make the point of is that there is no segment of the Christian church called white Christians. There's just Christians. They're neither Jew nor Greek. They're neither slave nor free. They're neither male nor female. They're just Christians. But the media is always trying to stir the pot. I love what Amir calls them, the medianites. <laughs> now this article says that not only is the fastest growing segment of society the religiously unaffiliated, but it says liberal churches now outnumber evangelical churches and to the media, evangelical and conservative are uh, synonyms. Now, in other words, liberals are taking over the church. That's what this report says, a secular report. So what's the point of all that? Just this. Can God still move? Yes. You bet he can. Can he still save even in a situation like we're in today? Can he still be brought glory through the one new man in such a time as this? Listen, God can do anything at any time, anywhere. Amen. Look what he's doing in Iran. A country where if you convert from Islam to Christianity, you can be killed for your faith. Where is the church growing fastest in the world? Iran, where the persecution is the greatest, the church has grown the fastest. Think about China. Think about the uh, persecuted church in China. The underground church has grown to the tune of well over 200 million saints in China. And they are under severe and have been under severe persecution. Listen, God's church is still here. God's church is still growing. And the only way his church can be stopped, because the gates of hell will not prevail against it, the only thing that can stop God's church is the rapture. Yeah. 
That's the only thing that can keep the church from being the preserving and purifying influence that it is. Now, get this. After we're gone and the world is in unimaginable chaos and turmoil, it's so radical on the world, Jesus said, if I didn't come back, it'd kill everybody. They end the tribulation. You know what's going to happen during the tribulation? He's going to keep right on saving. The Antichrist can threaten them. He can lop off their heads. But, but God is going to save millions of people. In Revelation 7, 9 to 14, we find the evidence. John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, tongues, uh, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Somebody say, Amen. Then, I, I love this right here. Then one of the elders answered. What was John's question? I'm thinking it was all over his face uh, with what he was seeing. One of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed, arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? And John said, You know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the what? Great the great tribulation, and washed their robes and made them white with what? Blood. The blood of the Lamb. How were me, we made white? <laughs> and I'm not talking about skin color. How were we cleansed? How were we purified? Wasn't it through the blood of the Lamb? So what's the blood of the Lamb doing during the tribulation period when the Antichrist thinks he's the boss? God is still saving souls. The Antichrist cannot stop God from saving souls. He is empowered by the dragon himself. That means Satan can't, can't stop God from saving souls. Even during the tribulation, God is going to save people who miss the rapture. Now, if I could offer some personal advice, don't miss the rapture. Get born again right now. Be taken in a moment in the twinkling of an eye and skip that whole 70th week of Daniel thing and go to the marriage supper of the Lamb instead. Now, God can do anything. At and hang that over your personal problems as a banner. Hang that over your head as a banner. Hang that over your circumstances that seem impossible as a banner. Now, I will say that God does things in a surprising manner sometimes, but he always does what's above and beyond what we ask or think. Are your personal circumstances bleak? God can do anything, anytime, and anywhere. When your situation seems impossible, God can do anything, anytime, anywhere. Now listen, sometimes he calms the storm. Sometimes he calms the saint in it. And the storm may continue to rage, but he's doing amazing things on our behalf. Amen? Either way, his power at work in us will enable us in any circumstance and through every storm to give and bring him glory at all times and in every circumstance. That's where you say, Amen. 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 And Father, we're grateful for your word this morning. We thank you 
uh, Lord, for these truths as Paul has uh, uh, presented them to us so wonderfully and beautifully and excitingly as well. And we thank you for his great parentheses that he inserts so much richness by inspiration of the Spirit for our understanding. And Lord, I pray that we would better understand uh, not just the need for love and not just that you would increase our desire to love and fill us more with your fullness, but rather, God, that we would have a sense of urgency uh, to express that love to one another. So not just as a point of identification that we're church members, but that others can see there's one who loves them that wants to save them out of their personal tribulation and strife. And Lord, we're thankful that you're still in that business and will always be so. Even as the world transitions from the age of the Gentiles and the church age included uh, to the 70th week of Daniel, you're still saving souls. We thank you. And Lord, we pray that should there be any here present in the room or watching online who need Jesus to save them, that you would move upon their hearts, convict them of their sin, call them to repentance, and that they would heed your call. Lord, you said in your word, no one comes unless you draw them. So we pray right now that you would draw people to yourself and that they would commit their souls to you, the faithful creator. We thank you, Lord, for our time together today. In Jesus' name, amen.